Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Hi there, Greg here with an end of season special episode of Witch Investigates. Over the past couple of months, I have so enjoyed deep diving into eight big sustainability questions, discovering which products or trends genuinely reduce our footprint on the planet and which instead appear to be a triumph of marketing spin and simply greenwashing. In the first half of the series, we opened with a look at food packaging, then tech obsolescence and electric cars, before turning to exploring whether a plant-based diet really is better for the planet and you. Then we moved on to the future of home heating, the impact of your holiday travel, the eco-benefits and costs of working from home. And last week, last week was a real eye-opener when it came to the unintended effect your money may be having on the climate. Before we wrap up this sustainability-focused first season and shift our gaze onto a new subject of investigation for season two coming in the autumn, I wanted to repeat what we did with the mid-season bonus episode and give you a chance to hear an extended chat from three of the many, many fascinating conversations I had while recording the second half of the series. Coming up, Mike Berners-Lee reveals the carbon footprint of the tech we use in our everyday life and ethical investment advisor Olivia Bowen reveals the surprising truth about how green a sustainable fund really is. First, though, we're going to go back to when I asked whether we can ever fly on holiday with a clear conscience and a rather probing chat that I had with Justin Francis, the CEO of a company called Responsible Travel. Responsible Travel markets themselves as a travel company with a difference. And as I mentioned in the episode, a quick click around their website reveals claims like, quote, our holidays are more enjoyable because they do good. And, quote, together we're making tourism better. But how can you run a company that offers trips to all corners of the world, most of them involving a flight to get there, and say that they do good? Well, you heard some of Justin's answers to my uh, interrogations, I guess, in the main episode. But there were many, many interesting moments during our long conversation. A big one we couldn't fit in the episode was our discussion on cruises. That's on the way. But first, I want to share a longer chunk of our chat around those claims. I see that you've got three big goals, and I'd just love to expand on them, really. Uh, Climate, nature and community and equality. Um, So let's start with nature. Uh, What are your goals for uh, travel and how it can uh, lessen its impact on nature and biodiversity? Okay, well, some of these goals are related. So let's talk about nature. Nature is important because it's our survival pack basically you know we depend on it but it's also vital for the climate battle 
because a healthy ecosystem absorbs carbon. But to your question directly, um, there's a few things which really destroy nature. Pollution of air, water, plastic pollution, also noise and light pollution can really disturb wildlife. Overexploitation of wildlife, loving wildlife to death. For example, whale watching trips which don't have good guidelines and disturb whales and dolphins. Land use change disturbs uh, and destroys wildlife when we're converting pristine coastlands into resorts that are not done in a sensitive way, destroys wildlife. And the last one, which everyone forgets about, is non-native invasive species, which also um, can have a disastrous impact locally. So what we're looking for is tourism that helps protect and restore habitats for wildlife, protects existing habitats and restores new habitats. And key to that is demonstrating the benefits to local people of protecting places for nature. So what we need is holidays that are sensitive, minimize their footprint, contribute to conservation, contribute to local communities that makes the case to them that this land is better used for nature and nature tourism than it is for intensive agriculture or development of other kinds. So we do all that hard work for you, for the customer behind the scenes to screen out those holidays. Um, but for the customer, you know, I think really you want to be lightening your footprint um, reducing uh, pollution, re reducing um, waste of all kinds, but you also want to be funding that kind of rewilding and restoration of nature. And many of the holidays will do that. So does a proportion of what people pay for their holiday, does it go to the community? Does it go to local, you know, nature protectors? Yes, well, it varies by trip. I guess your ideal trip would result in you enjoying a natural environment with a very light footprint the community's thinking, wow, we really saw a benefit to that. And the local conservation organizations also receiving some direct funding from the trip. And I think it's important to say is that we're not just talking about wildlife watching holidays here. All holidays have an impact on nature. Um, and so it might be walking and cycling or more general outdoor activity trip that we're applying the same principles to. Well, I think we've all, in tourism, to be honest, got a lot to learn. I mean, I'm seeing a colossal amount of plastic waste produced across the tourism industry, which is destroying nature in our marine and environments and rivers. I'm seeing a lot of, um, of untreated sewage being released uh, into our oceans and rivers. And I'm seeing our industry contribute a lot to climate change, which we need to talk more about collectively all of us have got an enormous amount of ground to make up there are nine million species that we've identified on earth uh, one million of them are at risk one million species out of nine million are at risk of extinction it's absolutely astonishing and the tourism industry you know i one of the things about it is that we kind of want to visit the most beautiful and fragile places no one wants to go to a place that isn't beautiful and attractive. And that's a double-edged sword. We both have the opportunity to help restore it, but we also, by visiting the most beautiful, the most fragile places, put them at risk as well. You've said that by 2030, you're going to deliver a 55% reduction in CO2 per passenger, uh, and that you're going to do this by changing how customers travel 
changing how the aviation industry operates. This is the big one, right? This is the big one. We're perhaps unusual in that we encourage our customers to fly less. Um, we are excited about the progress that the aviation industry is making towards becoming um, clean, but we don't think it's going to come fast enough. So our advice is take fewer but longer holidays, which means your flying will reduce. Swap out trips with flights to more trips closer to home or those that you can visit uh, using rail. One thing I'd noticed again and again in my research was companies claiming to offer sustainable holidays, something that just didn't really sit right with me. So I asked Justin about the use of that word. We also don't use the word sustainable when we attach it to international travel that involves aviation. It isn't sustainable. So fly less, make it count, make it count by choosing a holiday that really delivers some benefits locally. So that's our kind of broad approach. Can I ask you another difficult question? On your low carbon travel option pages on your website, uh, there are cruises on there. You know, cruises guzzling diesel left, right and centre. You know, they are not a sustainable form of travel. Do you think there is a place for them? Or do you think that's something that maybe is worth questioning? I'd like to differentiate within the cruise sector between the small ship expedition, expertly guided um, adventure, really. We're talking about ships with 40, 50 passengers in the Galapagos, for example, or around the Scottish Highlands from the mega um, cruise ship industry. I'm not saying that the, um, the small ship cruise sector is perfect by any means. There's some issues there as well. But the large cruise um, sector, we don't sell. Uh, we would never sell. We've spoken out against very strongly. Although they're, they're slowly starting to make some progress um, with developing LPG, the first LPG-powered cruise ships. Although that they, is, of course, still a significant fossil fuel, I should, I should interject. It's a significant fossil fuel, um, but it's a lot better than what they burn now, which is bunker fuel. Bunker fuel is... Um, it's toxic. If it's on land, it is classified as toxic. Um, it is one of the cheapest and most heavily polluting forms of fuel that you can get, not only in terms of um, uh, carbon, but in terms of other um, greenhouse gases as well, which are, which are particularly damaging. So um, it's one of the dirtiest fuels that you can that you can possibly find. So, so yes, LPG fossil fuel not great, but it's better than than bunker fuel. And when I talk about the cruise industry, I was careful to say that the very start of the journey of of of, of making making progress. There's huge huge issues. Part of my concern with them as well is that they uh, they distance you from the culture and they distance you from potentially those those benefits with the environment, especially when it's like, here's a package day that you can go on, you know, from the ship. I think there's a trade-off with, um, with, with tourism. Uh, we do create negative impacts as well as some positive impacts. But in return for that, 
I think we've got to do the right thing by local people in the tourism destinations. And the, the challenge with the cruise industry is got some of the worst environmental impacts, but it also creates some of the lowest benefits to people in cruise destinations because people typically eat on board um, and of course they stay on board. And what tourism does, which people in destinations often like is it's, it um, supports the local economy, um, supports the hotel sector, supports um, restaurants and other tourism providers. The income from the cruise industry is less than from other sectors and the impacts are greater. And that's before we get onto the issues of over-tourism and overcrowding. And when you have a thousand people arriving in one go in destinations, particularly the smaller ones, it creates huge uh, issues and congestion, not just for the tourists, but for local people as well. I have two more questions, if you'll permit me. One is about carbon labelling and whether you think this is something that would be great to see across the board. We all need to make lower carbon choices in everything that we do. Our research has shown, and it's obvious, that different types of holidays have vastly different carbon emissions. So it would seem a great idea to give people a choice through labeling a holiday with its carbon emissions so that you can um, actively choose holidays on that basis. Labeling of products of all kinds for carbon has been slow. Uh, there's a very few companies doing it. Um, I was pleased to see just the day before yesterday that um, big food manufacturers beginning to come together, Nestle and others, around a common way to label food um, environmentally, including carbon emissions, but also impacts on nature and biodiversity. We need the same in tourism. It has to come. This is an emergency. You need to know not only the carbon emissions of holiday A versus holiday B, but you also need to know the carbon emissions of your holiday compared to other things in your life. And some would argue your carbon budget a controversial idea, but countries are setting NDCs, which is a carbon budget. As part of the climate summit, you will see countries beginning to disclose their carbon budgets. Maybe that should come down to the customer as well. So when I'm looking at, at my holiday, um, I'm evaluating it compared to other holidays, but also other things in my life um, and uh, making the best choices we can. I guess my last question then is how eco-friendly can eco-travel be? Is it possible? You're asking how how possible it, it is um, for the sector but for, you know it's a kind of fit for all of us you know I mean if you have choose to have kids it's probably the single most carbon polluting thing you can do. The science tells us how much we must we must need to reduce carbon by in order to avoid the worst excesses of the climate crisis. Science-based targets, which is a methodology which businesses can use, uses math to demonstrate how they can reach those emissions reductions. The aviation sector believes it can it can deliver net zero by by, by 2050. If you are thinking that it's entirely sustainable to fly and go on holiday, I'm sorry, and I'm a travel businessman, 
but it isn't. If you can reduce your flights significantly and you can choose a holiday with real strong support for communities and for conservation, I believe there's value in that. If you do that uh, in a limited way and you also have holidays closer to home and you also take travel, take holidays slightly further away using trains, then I believe that the tourism industry is still an important and valuable and viable industry in a low carbon future. So there's a place for it um, and there's a demand for it. I mean, uh, we are a curious species. We love it. We want it. Um, so um, I believe that um, there's a role for, for tourism, a strong role for tourism, um, but very strongly hesitate to use the word sustainable unless you are significantly reducing your carbon emissions, which means flying less. Thank you again, Justin, for chatting to me. Uh, it was such a fascinating conversation and I really appreciated the honesty. It was great. If you are listening to this and you're wondering whether opting for the carbon offset option when you book a flight will actually reduce your travel footprint, or if you've heard of biofuels and you're wondering if they are the green future for flights, do go and have a listen to episode six because uh, I explore all that there. Now, though, from the dreams of travel to the realities of home working, many of us, of course, have experienced a huge change in the way we work over the last 18 months or so. So it seemed only right to investigate the eco impact that this shift from office working to working from home has had. I had seen plenty of headlines talking about how working from the kitchen table had slashed our carbon emissions thanks to far fewer of us commuting. And I'd heard suggestions that we should continue to do so for the sake of the planet. But as always, I wanted to look into the evidence and speak to the experts, including Mike Berners-Lee, an expert in carbon footprints and author of multiple books on the subject. I wanted to know about the other side of the coin, the unexpected impact of working from home and the true cost benefit of that versus being in the office. Mike and I discussed uh, the emissions created by the countless video calls lots of us have had and also the carbon generated by sending an email. But let's start with how do you actually go about calculating the carbon footprint of anything? The first thing to say is that it's impossible to be totally accurate about it. So by carbon footprint, we're meaning the total carbon footprint of an activity or, or if it's a product, you know, all the activities that had to take place in order to create that product right down through the supply chains. And there's, if you really think about it, there's always an infinite number of processes. Um, so it's a question of making a, a best estimate. And you can either do it through a thing called life cycle analysis, where you try and add up one by one all the different stages in the process. Or you can do it by um, a kind of macroeconomic modeling, which looks at the way that carbon flows through the economy and tries to do it by understanding the sort of financial flows uh, and the carbon associated with that. Or you can kind of combine the two approaches together. So it's a bit of a mess and it's about trying to get the, the best possible practical understanding that you can have. When you talk about the macroeconomics and tracking it through uh, the system, mm. is that more about the energy consumption and where that's come from? 
Well, um, I don't know how technical you want to get, but you can set up a model of the way that you can divide the whole economy up into different industries and you can get data on how those industries buy and sell from each other. And you can also know the direct emissions that come out of each industry. And with a funky bit of maths, what you can do is you can track the way that when an industry produces something, a pound's worth of product, it has some emissions, and it also buys some stuff from all the other industries, causing them to have some emissions. And so you get this ripple effect of emissions going right through the economy to infinity. And you have to be very careful of it because um, it's, it's incredibly generic. So you kind of combine it with other more specific approaches. Um, and between those two methods, you can sort of get the best understanding that's, that's possible. There are multiple ways that you could add up the impact of something on the planet. There is the carbon production, the carbon dioxide production. There's also the other GHDs, the other greenhouse gases. There's also the water footprint. There's the land footprint. So how does one take those various metrics and put them into one, you know, quote, carbon uh, figure? Yeah. OK, so in just in terms of uh, climate change, I mean, it's... It, Compared to other environmental impacts, climate has got in, is in one sense incredibly simple because it lends itself to this wonderful metric of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent if you want to roll all the greenhouse gases together. But basically, you know, um, the amount of temperature change that we experience is very clearly related to the number of carbon dioxide molecules or the tons of carbon dioxide that we put up into the atmosphere. And for the other greenhouse gases, we can quite clearly relate them to each other and, and, and roll them into a kind of carbon dioxide equivalent metric. So it lends itself to a simple numerical measure in a way that, for example, biodiversity finds it much, much harder to do. So, you know, that's the simple side of the climate. Uh, if there's anything simple about climate change, it'd be that it lends itself to simple metrics. We could have chatted for every episode of this podcast um, and it would have been fascinating. We've chosen to talk about uh, work and the future of work. So let's start then with the emissions. What emissions does work create? So offices, businesses, etc. OK, so when you go to work, let's say you work for a business, um, that business, uh, you know, well, you will have some emissions, you know, maybe you walk or maybe you go on a bike or maybe you work from home if you commute or maybe you go on a car or a train or whatever. So that's step one. You'll have a workplace. Let's say it's an office or there'll be a little bit of carbon around the running of that office, turning the lights on, keeping it warm in winter, that kind of thing. Those things for many businesses, they're quite small in the scheme of things. Then you've got all the things that the business has to buy in order to go about doing its work. And that's a mixture of goods and services. And they all have a carbon footprint. So, you know, if you're a car manufacturer, then you're quite clearly you're buying in steel and components. And you, we can clearly imagine that there's heavy emissions going on um, uh, in the supply chains of that. But let's supposing you're a tech company and you're buying in you know, you might be buying in software, you might be buying in consultancy. Well, all those consultancies have offices and people who sometimes fly and they all buy computers and they have carbon footprints. So it all adds up that, through that kind of myriad of supply chains. And 
that we've just been discussing. And it's very, it's very different for every kind of business. So it's about trying to trying to add all that up and understand where the big deals are. Is the big deal in the commuting or the air travel or is it the steel we're buying in or is it or maybe it's the consultancy or the IT that we buy or whatever. And then there's the downstream bit, which is that the goods and services that you supply, and this is can be even trickier again, the goods and services that you supply will have some impact on the rest of the world's carbon footprint. So it might be that you're making cars and those cars are going to get driven. Or it might be that you're an oil company and you know that your product is going to get burned with a huge carbon footprint. Or it might be more complicated than that. You might be, let's say, you could be a video conferencing supplier like Zoom, for example. Uh, well, in which case, the question is, are you enabling people to have a lower carbon life because they now can work from home, don't have to travel in so much, or maybe don't have to do as many flights, in which case it's a carbon saving? Or does it work the other way, that people who would never usually meet find that they can meet because of Zoom, and because they meet up over Zoom, they get to know each other really well. And then they decide they have to make the relationship a bit closer. And then it actually they decide they've got to fly to meet each other. And that stimulates a flight that would never have happened without Zoom. And all this stuff gets much more complex than we sometimes like to think at face value. Because we have all been working from home and isolated for such a long amount of time, there may be a rebound effect if people continue to work from home, they'll want to get out of their home more than they would previously. So they may want to travel, fly to see colleagues, etc., more than they did previously. Well, I think it's very interesting how we get our social needs met. Uh, we all have a need to go and interact with other people. And we do that through a mixture of at home and in our workplaces and in our social lives. Video conferencing sort of does that up to a point but I think most people find that it's not really as as good and as rich in it as an experience as being in the same room um, as another person so uh, when we start to work from home I think we're all going to be doing things to make sure that that part of us that just needs to see and be with other people is being properly met so you know, the plus side of that is that local communities might just get a bit stronger and everybody starts joining their local clubs that they can walk to see and all the rest of it. And that could be a very good low carbon thing. And it could be very good more widely for the just coherence of our communities and the quality of all our lives. Um, but conversely, if our solution is to go and go on long drives in all our spare time just to meet up with our friends who also, just like us, have moved to mansions, but in different parts of the countryside, then, you know, that's, that's, that's the worst scenario. So a, lo a lot of this conversation boils down to, it's not straightforward whether this transition to working at home a bit more than we ever used to is going to be good for sustainability and good for carbon or not. It's a question of how we go about it. There's a bit more nuance in it. You can work from home more in a really high carbon way, but if you put your mind to it and you say, look, I'm going to work from home a bit more for various reasons, and I'm going to find a way of making sure that whilst I'm at it, I take the opportunity to make some carbon savings, then I think that's entirely possible as well. And what would be your kind of top three uh, tips, you know, from your, your research for how we can ensure that when we work from home, 
our emissions are lower. What do we need to be doing in the future to be more sustainable in this hybrid model? If we're going to work from home a bit more, then it becomes even more important than ever that our homes become more energy efficient. And when we do commute, the usual factors apply. So it's about, can we find a way of not taking the car? If we do take a car, can we find a way of lift sharing, which is more sociable anyway? You know, can we find ways of getting onto public transport? Can we find ways of walking and cycling, which keeps us fitter while we're at it um, as well? So you know, it's, it's not just whether we commute, it's how we commute. And I think that if we do decide that we're going to move house or change our home in some way as a result of the fact that we're working from home more, it's worth having a careful think about the environmental credentials of the location of the place we're moving to and and also the size and energy characteristics of the new home. And what about with the office? What considerate what if this is a chance to, you know, build back better, what do we need to be doing in terms of offices too and, and other businesses? A huge chunk of the point of coming to the office is for that higher quality interaction that we have with other people. Not you know, and that's for a mixture of, of you know, social benefit and business benefit. And so we need to set our offices up so that they really are good at cashing in on that, so that they enhance the kind of interactions that you can't have when you're all sat at home having Zoom calls. But equally, we perhaps don't need quite so much space. So I would imagine more hot desking on the basis that if we all had our own desk, it wouldn't be getting such good usage anymore. Do you think shifting to a shorter working week as we've just seen with the uh, the pilot in Iceland uh, do you think that that could be something that not only would help us you know mentally potentially do you think that that would help us sustainability wise as well humans are in an interesting situation we've been getting more and more efficient at just about everything you can think of for generation after generation and actually the work that we need to do now in order to function, stay healthy, provide the food and so on that we need in life is a lot less than uh, it needed to be 50 or 100 years ago. And it's a lot less than it, than it is at the moment. We do a lot of creating additional work for ourselves, you know, having things produced that we don't strictly need so that we can look more fashionable, so that we can fill our houses up with more junk. You know, there's a lot of human activity in the economy that isn't actually strictly needed for human well-being. So if we can find a way of recalibrating a bit, shortening the hours uh, in which we're working very often so that we can spend more of our time doing the things that we love doing, or if we really love our work, then that's fine. Do it for as much of the time as is fulfilling. But if we get this right, there ought to be an opportunity for certainly for less people to spend more time working than they want to. My long chat with Mike covered all sorts of different areas where you can create carbon emissions in relation to your work, be that at home or in the office. And there was one claim that I'd heard that I really wanted to run past him. Could turning my camera off during a video call help save the planet? You know, to put video streaming in perspective, if you look at the carbon footprint of the whole world's ICT, including all the data centers, all the networks, all the end user devices, even including um, 
you know, all the kind of really high-end, super technical data analysis that goes on in, in Google and Amazon and, and so on, and even Bitcoin and cri other cryptocurrencies, the, the whole lot. And if you include in that definition all watching of TV and videos and films, you know, the, everything you could possibly imagine might be construed to be ICT. It comes in at something like somewhere between 25 and 4% of the world's carbon footprint. So it's not nothing, but it's a pretty small deal. But specifically, where does, where does video streaming fit within all this? Data centers are involved. They're about 10% of the world's ICT. The networks are involved. They're about one sixth or a seventh of, the, of all the world's ICT. And there's been a lot of uh, talk uh, recently, toing and froing about whether high definition streaming is a real issue or not. And uh, there were some horror stories going around about it being, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's 30 or 40 kilograms of carbon just to watch a film in high definition. Actually, that turns out not to be the case at all. And um, so it's a bit like if you're streaming video at all, it has about, it doesn't really matter how much data you're putting down the line. So it's a bit like saying, you know, if you're driving a lorry from Glasgow to London, it doesn't matter whether you put one egg in it um, or whether you fill it right to the brim with eggs. You know, the carbon footprint of the journey is about the same. So you may as well, you may as well fill it full of eggs. And, and it's a very similar sort of story with, with video streaming. If, you're, if, you're, if you've got any connection at all, that's got a carbon footprint. It means you've got your Wi-Fi turned on. It means the network is activated. It means something's going on at the other end. And there's very little difference between whether you do a, a, a bare minimum definition or whether you put 10 times as much data down the line. The really big question is whether that use of video conferencing takes us into overall higher carbon living or lower carbon living. Does it mean that we no longer get on aeroplanes and we no longer get in our cars so much, in which case it's a carbon saving? Or does it mean that we get to know each other in ways we would never have got to know each other before and we find ourselves feeling we have to fly and drive to see each other face to face? That's the real question with all this video conferencing. And we don't know the answer to that yet, I we, assume. Well, no, we don't know the answer to it, but uh, it's partly a decision for us to make ourselves. Um, but the, the, the thing to understand about efficiency savings is that they don't lead to a reduction in the impact we have on the planet unless we deliberately bag the savings. It makes savings possible, but unless we deliberately bag them, we won't get them. I found that a particularly interesting point to leave our chat on. We can make all the carbon savings in the world, but if we don't use those savings to make a difference, yeah, what's the point? So, so good to get Mike Berners-Lee on the podcast. Um, and if you're thinking, hang on, Greg, I've heard that surname before. Well, indeed you have, because his brother is Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. And in episode seven, Mike explores the impact of something 
that I thought came from the World Wide Web, email. Although when I was actually reading up on it, it turns out that email existed before the World Wide Web. In 1984, there was a tech TV show that demonstrated how to send an email using a computer and a rotary phone connected to something called Micronet via webpage 7776. Hmm. Uh, That was before there was URL and a World Wide Web. But anyway... I digress. It is now time for our final chat, and it is a conversation I had whilst working on last week's podcast, where I asked the question, could your money be causing climate change? As part of the investigation, I spoke to Olivia Bowen. She's a partner at an investment firm called Castlefield, who refer to themselves as the thoughtful investor. Olivia is an expert in all things sustainable investing. So who better to speak to when trying to find out the impact our money has on the planet? In our chat, I try to tease out what funds genuinely can do good for the planet and how they choose them and how they ensure that they do. Olivia also lets slip that a sustainable fund may not be 100% sustainable. But I'll get to that in a bit because I first discussed the names that we use for these funds. In the podcast, you will have heard I opted for sustainable investing because it seemed a natural fit. You know, the first season of Which Investigates is looking into claims of sustainability after all. But as I briefly mentioned in the episode, there are many, many terms out there. So let's start by hearing more from Olivia about why Castlefield use that term thoughtful investor rather than sustainable or ethical. Well, what we found is that I think a lot of our clients still use the the phrase ethical as a catch-all. And I think some people don't identify themselves as necessarily ethical consumers or ethical. So it can polarise people and they think that it's possibly a bit of a judgy term that that, you know, I'm declaring myself to be ethical, which must mean that you are unethical if you're not investing in this way, if you see what I mean. So we thought that... it's probably a softer way of talking about the same thing is to use the word thoughtful investing. And we do use that in our in our marketing. But I slip into old habits because I've been doing this over 20 years. So I just sort of go back to ethical investing. So just to clarify, some some investors think I'm not ethical in everything I do. Therefore, I I shouldn't or I can't invest in an ethical fund. Yes. Or maybe it's not for me. Maybe it's a bit too dark green or or hippie or whatever. I I love that you've just mentioned dark green because I was reading that there are various shades of greenness, which is something I want to get to. But first, if if there are ethical funds, that therefore suggests there are unethical funds. If there are sustainable, there's unsustainable, etc. So so what are the concerns here? Um, In what ways can savings and investments be bad for the planet? Okay, so I prefer the term conventional. Um, So we say you know, this is a a responsible fund and this is a conventional fund that's just doing stuff the way it's always been done. You know, Um, it might have some good, it'll probably have some bad in there. Um, But what are the concerns? Well, the concerns are is that by investing in companies, you're giving those companies money, whether that's via buying shares or um, buying their debt or whatever it is. And so you may not want your money to go towards a company that is um, mining minerals overseas in a war-torn area and not treating its employees properly and possibly making the situation in that country worse. But you might be happy to invest in a company that's mining in a responsible way 
and taking great care of its employees and its supply chain. You might say, I don't want to invest in that in mining at all. So it's about having a more of a voice and having more thought about which companies you want to support with your money. Is it the case that if you invest in conventional uh, funds and, and companies, the reason that they invest in the arms trade or tobacco or et cetera, is because that's always been the ripest area for return? Potentially. Sometimes it's about dividend income as well. But sometimes it's just a case of these companies are enormous and lots of funds will trap themselves against sector averages or the, the FTSE 100 or the FTSE 350. So if they don't invest, if they make an active choice not to invest in some of the largest components of the FTSE, for example, then their performance will always be out of kilter with the rest of the market. And biggest question, I guess, is do you make similar returns on these uh, more thoughtful funds? Yes, you'll find you have good funds and bad funds in terms of performance. But we've seen time and time again that responsible investing can outperform conventional investing. And it won't in every cycle. So, for example, at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, um, markets got very excited about the vaccines and um, in investment sectors like oil and airlines, which had really suffered, bounced back. Now, most responsible investing won't invest in airlines because of climate change. Um, and oil is um, often screened out or a, a lower um, lower percentage of the fund than would be normal. And so we, we saw responsible funds lag at that point. But since then, they've, they've caught back up. A thought on, on what you said about um, the different terms. So it feels to me that ethical is about the way that people are treated. So it's, it's you know, as we were talking about, it's the way that people in those minds are treated is, is worker rights. Whereas sustainable is about the emissions related to that industry that your funds are going into. Uh, and green, well, yes, how, how indeed do you define green? So are there official classifications of these different funds and these different titles? The industry is, is desperately trying to define it in a way, and even the FCA is getting involved, because they're aware that if you mislabel something, then that could lead to a whole complaint issue further down the line you know and it's great that the fca again only recently but still is getting behind this and trying to make sure that the industry is fit for purpose as it were as it grows at, at castlefield how do you decide who warrants your interest who 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 deserves ethically sustainably mm. the money of of your investors because we've been doing it such a long time we've uh, we've got an integrated investment management team with our ethical an anal analysts. So it's integrated between the investment management, ethical analysts are all part of the same team. So they're not two separate bodies. And we're looking at external funds, but also individual investee companies. And we use a best framework. We look at the business angle, the environmental angle, the social angle and the transparency or governance angle for anything that we want to invest in. Um, but what you find in some larger fund houses is you might have an investment team going, we really want to invest in this for financial reasons. And then the ethical analyst team going, oh, no, you know, that's really not 
loud and there's tension between those two teams. So ideally you want a firm that there's no tension. Everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet and that works really well. And how often does that team actually discover that this supposed green uh, company or, or, or they're claiming X, Y or Z, actually they're just not delivering it, that that is greenwashing? It does sometimes happen. Um, so you can have meetings with management and you can you know, really get to know a company. And we do know the companies that we invest in on behalf of clients very well. But there can be surprises, of course. And in that case, you want to be able to react very quickly and either sell um, or be able to engage very quickly with that firm about what they're doing and say, you know, we won't put up with this and we won't put up with that. Can I just pick up something you mentioned earlier? Earlier on, you said uh, when you were talking about oil, you said that either oil will be screened out Mm. and then you said, or it may be there at a lower percentage. And I thought, hang on a minute, that can't therefore be a a green or an ethical or sustainable uh, fund, can it? Well, it can. It depends on the definition of the fund. Um, And what you do find as well is that within, um, because the companies that we invest in are so enormous, they often have many different facets to them. But the bigger companies will have um, many different sub-companies. And what, what we've done as an industry from the word go, really, has been to say, as long as the turnover or the profits or however you want to determine it is less than 10% from pornography or tobacco or, or oil extraction or whatever it is, then that's okay. Um, because you might have a company that's doing a huge amount of good. Um, it might be be, say, an oil company that's moved to renewable energy, but it's just got a bit of remnants of oil. But you actually do want to invest in that company because it's moving in the right direction. And in a balanced view, it's much better than it is bad. You'll hear in the episode my surprise and frustration about so-called green funds not actually being fully green. And as you heard me mention earlier, funds are actually labelled with different shades of green. What the heck is the difference between a dark green investment and a light green investment? The extent of the positive and negative screens, really. So although green would make you think of the environment, um, historically we've talked about dark green as a fund that had very strict negative screens. So it was very strict about what it wouldn't invest in. Um and had a good range of positive screens, so the things that it would invest in. So it's the depth of the ethics, in a sense. It sounds to me like dark green gets closer to what I would imagine and very much hope that green is. Light green feels to me like it's a sprinkling of greenness in order to imply greenness. I suppose nobody would call their own fund light green, would they? But no. it might. But someone else might call their fund light green. But you could you could be assessing two funds next to each other and to be fair to each, just say this one's lighter green than this one. Nothing wrong with the lighter green one necessarily. You know, maybe the dark green one would be perfect for a vegan, for example, because it's really strong on animal testing alongside other type of investments. And the lighter green one in that context might not be as suitable for a vegan 
So sometimes in discussions with clients, I've compared two and referred to one as dark green and one to light green, but the light green fund is still a robust ethical fund to invest in. How should a listener choose a, a fund, choose a green fund, an ethical fund, a sustainable fund to invest in? Pick a fund manager that's got more than one ethical fund. So, you know, it's not just tokenism, ideally with some track record, because otherwise they might just be very new to the market. And again, just sort of jumping on the bandwagon. Um, you should pick a, a fund where the investment team engage with the companies that they invest in on your behalf. And, and it's sometimes called stewardship. So there should be something on the website about that, either engagement or stewardship. Um, again, publishing a list of not just the top 10 holdings, but everything that the fund invests in. Um, and also most good quality ethical funds will benchmark themselves against a conventional index, not just an ethical one. So you can check how you're doing compared to the wider market. Yeah, the whole dark green v light green fund and ethical v sustainable stuff was a real eye-opener. So thanks so much to Olivia for helping me unpick all that. The amazing thing about that final episode, though, as I say in its introduction and I explore throughout it, is that your money could, without you realising it, be undoing all the eco-benefits of going vegetarian or switching planes for trains or, or going and getting an electric car. And it is quite astonishing. If you haven't listened to that, um, it's possibly my favourite of the series, so go have a listen. And it was, in fact, the final investigation in this first season of Which Investigates. But I will be back in the autumn with a new season and a new focus. A huge thank you to everyone involved in this first season, all the experts that gave their time to talk to me, the whole sustainability team at Which, and especially my co-producer, Rob Lilly. A big thank you to you for listening and for sharing. And if you have had a chance to rate the podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been amazing to be number one in the documentary podcast charts on multiple weeks. That's so cool. And that is down to your reviews. So, uh, yeah, thanks. If you've got any questions or thoughts uh, or if you've got anything that you would like me to investigate in the future, do get in touch. I'm at Greg Foote on Twitter and Instagram and which is at which UK. Today's bonus episode was presented by me, Greg Foote, written and produced by me and Rob Lilly, and our executive producer is Angus Farker. And I will see you in autumn for season two. Or as somebody said, hear you. I'll hear you, not see you. But yes, then. Bye. (laughs)